But if you have your Bibles, will you turn to 1 Kings chapter 14? 1 Kings chapter 14. We are looking at a series called The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. So we are looking at the um, history of the kings of Israel and Judah. And what we're going to do, we're going to do them in a chronological order. So we're going to look at when they came to the throne. We're going to look at what was happening during that time, what prophets were prophesying during that time, what different books of the Bibles fit in where. And we're going to notice that some kings were good, some kings were bad, and some kings were ugly. And so many people have said, oh, what are the ugly kings, and how do we know what they look like? Um, it doesn't necessarily mean um, ugly with their looks, because the king that we're going to look at today was ugly in the fact that what took place and what foundation was laid for the northern kingdom of Israel. The man we're going to look at today is the, the litmus test or the plumb line or the, the, um, the bar for the bad kings. Everybody was, in the southern kingdom was referred to as David. They were always referred to back to as they were always referred back to David in terms of how good they were. You know, they didn't follow the Lord like their father David. They did that which was right uh, in the sight of the Lord according to David, their father. So all the good kings, um, the, the litmus test for goodness is referred back to David. But the king we're going to look at today, everything that was bad in the northern kingdom referred back to this man. And he had the opportunity to be good, but he wasn't just bad. He was pretty ugly. So last week we saw um, a kind of a little bit of a timeline. We saw that David reigned for seven years in Hebron over one uh, kingdom after Saul's death, and then finally uh, uh, reigned for 33 years in Jerusalem over a united kingdom. And then Solomon, his son, took over um, after David's 40-year reign, and Solomon reigned in Jerusalem for 40 years. And then Solomon's son... Rehoboam took the throne and he was given some advice. Jeroboam was Solomon's servant and Jeroboam came and said, look, ease the taxes. You know, your father taxed the people quite heavily in order to pay for the building projects and whatnot. Ease the taxes. Rehoboam went to the old men of the kingdom, the old councillors, and said, what do you think we should do? Listen to Jeroboam. Ease the taxes. The people will follow you. He goes to the young crowd and says, boys, what do you think? Oh, I tell you what, if your father, you know, used whips on them, then you use scorpion tails. You know, do you, if your uh, father did this, then you do this ten times worse. And Rehoboam followed the advice of the younger crowd, and the kingdom split. Rehoboam was king over two tribes, um, Judah and Benjamin, whilst Jeroboam then was crowned king over the northern kingdom, and he had ten tribes. Jeroboam was ugly in the sense that he laid some pretty bad foundations for the northern kingdom of Israel. So we saw last week where the split was, and if you have a Bible map in the back of your Bible where you have the twelve tribes distributed through the land, you might notice that in the southern kingdom there is a big circle in the middle of Judah which says Simeon. Where did they go? Because if Judah, if Rehoboam had the southern kingdom of Judah, and he only had two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, where did Simeon go? 
We'll have a little look at that now in a little while. So the king we're going to look at today is Jeroboam. And in 1 Kings chapter 14, uh, we see Jeroboam crowned as king. 1 Kings chapter 14. And um, it says in verse 20, uh, And the days which Jeroboam reigned were um, two and twenty years. I've gone to the wrong. I'm so sorry. It's not 1 Kings 14. I said this to Steve earlier. I said, it's 1 Kings 12. Fancy got the wrong. There we go. It says in, uh, in 1 Kings 12, 25, I'm sorry. It says, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in Mount Ephraim and dwelt therein and went out from thence and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people uh, go up, uh, to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one in Bethel, and the other put he in Dan. This is, and this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one even unto Dan. And he made a house of high places and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah. And he offered upon the altar, so did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made, and he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel. And he offered upon the altar and burned incense. Father, we thank you again for this day. We thank you for this time together and for this opportunity to come around you a word, Lord. We just prayed you would speak to our hearts today. As we come to look at the life of Jeroboam, Lord, we see a king uh, that was a king of counterfeits, Lord. We see uh, how he set up this counterfeit religion in the northern kingdom. We see how he uh, desired a counterfeit uh, loyalty, how he had a counterfeit worship, Lord. Everything about this king was contrary to what your word says and stands for. And Father, I pray that in our lives, uh, we wouldn't fall for the counterfeit things of this world. But Father, we would always put you first and be obedient to your word uh, and have a desire for your will to be done in our lives. So Lord, we just pray today now that you'd speak to our hearts, help us to have an understanding and to be able to apply this word to our hearts and lives. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So we are introduced to a man by the name of Jeroboam, um, and he was um, Solomon's servant. In 1 Kings 11:26, we see that Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephrathite of Zereda, Solomon's servant. So this man was Solomon's servant, and in verse 28 of 1 Kings 11, he's actually called a mighty man of valor. And you know that brings a whole host of things to your mind when we think of David's 
men of valor. Um, so this is a man of valor. Jeroboam was somebody who served Solomon, who was a mighty man of valor. So much so that in verse 28 of 1 Kings 11, Solomon makes Jeroboam ruler over the house of Joseph. In verse 30, Ahijah, the prophet, caught, uh, uh, caught hold of Jeroboam, uh, caught a new garment that was on him and rent it into 12 pieces, gave 10 to Jeroboam and said, God is going to rend the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and he's going to give you 10 tribes. Ahijah then closes with some incredible advice for Jeroboam. In 1 Kings um, 12.38. It's not 12.38, it's 11.38. Oh my days, my references are awful today. Uh, in 1 Kings 11.38, Ahijah said, or God said through Ahijah, if thou wilt hearken unto all that I command thee, and wilt walk in my ways, and do that which is right in my sight, to keep my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, then I will be with thee, and build thee a sure house, as I built for David, and I will give Israel unto thee. How incredible that Ahijah gives Jeroboam this advice. Say, look, if you hearken unto the Lord, if you follow the Lord's word, if you follow the Lord's commands, he will give you a kingdom just like he did David. As a result of this prophecy, Solomon then seeks to kill Jeroboam, and Jeroboam flees to Egypt until Solomon's death. It's only after Solomon dies that Jeroboam comes back from Egypt, and he's the one then that gives the advice to, um, uh, to Rehoboam to say, look, ease the taxes, and the people will follow you. Is that why Rehoboam got crowned in Shechem, which was a stronghold of um, uh, Ephraim? Because Jeroboam was made ruler of the house of Joseph, containing Manasseh and Ephraim. So it's possible that's why Rehoboam was crowned in Shechem then to kind of say, hey, look, you know what? I'm the king no matter what prophecies you might have heard. You know, I'm the king of the whole um, 12 tribes, as it were. So we saw last week the nation split. We saw Jeroboam take the southern kingdom, and, and now we're seeing Jeroboam take the northern kingdom. So where did Simeon go? Because for those who got a Bible, a map in the back of your Bible, you'll notice that Simeon is part of Judah, or it has land right in the middle of Judah. Well, in 2 Chronicles 15:9, we're kind of given a glimpse that at some point, Simeon must have migrated north at some point. Because in 2 Chronicles chapter 15 and verse 9, uh, we are told um, that. He gathered all Judah and Benjamin. So he gathered all of the southern kingdom um, together. Um, And if you want to turn to 2 Chronicles, chapter 15 and verse 9. 2 Chronicles, chapter 15. We see Asa, um, kind of uh, a, a little revival taking place here. He gathers all of Judah and all of Benjamin together, and the strangers with them, out of Ephraim, and Manasseh, and out of Simeon. For they fell to him out of Israel in abundance when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. So at some point, 
Simeon must have migrated north because there's a confusion. Say, ah, oh, well, how, how did Jeroboam have ten tribes in the north? Because Simeon was a tribe in the southern kingdom. And if there was only two tribes in the south, being Judah and Benjamin, that we know of, what happened to Simeon? At some point, Simeon kind of headed north and was taken up with the um, northern kingdom. So how is Jeroboam going to lead this new kingdom? How is Jeroboam going to lead? Remember now, he's the one that gave advice to Rehoboam. So you think, well, this guy has got his head screwed on. This guy knows what he's doing. This guy is going to kind of, you know, have a fresh start, clean page, you know, let's really um, put the Lord first. Uh, and again, you know, we come back to, uh, to what um, Ahijah said. If thou wilt hearken unto all that I command thee and wilt walk in my ways and do that which is right in my sight and keep my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I'll be with thee. I will build thee a sure house. That is a steadfast house. That is a house that will stand the test of time. There was nothing so tumultuous as the northern kingdom. And we're going to get to a point where, you know, you're just going to see the throne change hands, like, one after another after another. And it's going to change families. It's not as if Jeroboam is going to become the king now, and his family line is going to go right the way down to the end, because it changes family, it changes dynasty. It's tumultuous. But if he'd have been obedient to the Lord, the Lord said, I'll build you a sure house, a steadfast house, a house that'll stand the test of time. The promises of God were conditional. If, if, only small words, if, if you do this, then I'll do this. That's a conditional promise. An unconditional promise is the fact that, you know, God loved the world so much that he gave his sense. An unconditional promise. He left stung by a counterfeit. Maybe you've had those phone calls that say, hey, your TV license hasn't, uh, your direct debit for your TV license hasn't gone through, and, you know, you need to give us all your bank deals. You're like, oh, yeah, okay, that sounds legitimate. Maybe you've had that phone call, this, that, that really convincing phone call says, hello, we are from the police, and you owe us tax money. Please give us all your deals. There's incredible counterfeits out today. The amount of times that people say, oh, my, my account's been hacked. Don't accept any friend requests off me. That's a brilliant way, if you want to say anything nasty about somebody on Facebook, just say something nasty and go like, oh, my account was hacked. <laughs> We've all been hurt by counterfeits. Counterfeits are something that is not the real thing, but it pretends to be. Jeroboam was a king of counterfeits. First of all, we see a counterfeit protection. Remember now, God said, if you are obedient to me, I'll make you a sure house. I'll give you a house where you'll have no, uh, nobody challenging the throne. I'll give you a house where you don't need to worry about somebody coming up against you. But what does uh, Jeroboam do? The first thing he does when he gets to the throne, it says in verse 25 of 1 Kings 12, then Jeroboam built Shechem in Mount Ephraim and dwelt therein and went out from thence and built Penuel. 
Shechem was the city where the rebellion against the house of David had taken place. And now it becomes the first capital of this new nation. And Jeroboam acts quickly in solidifying his power. The city was um, strategically located in the hill country and it commanded the major roads. roads and we know that it has a, a spiritual significance because the, of the association with Abraham, the association it has uh, with Jacob. Um, Jeroboam also goes across then and fortifies Penuel, which again uh, has a significance uh, where Jacob wrestled uh, with God. And Jeroboam, uh, everything he did, every decision he made uh, had an incredible significance in that infant kingdom, as it were. God promised Jeroboam that he would make him a sure house. But what he tries to do is to take matters into his own hand to solidify his kingdom, to protect his kingdom, to do things his way. Um, Jeroboam didn't earn his right to rule. That was a gift from God. God said, I will give you this kingdom. And immediately, Jeroboam takes matters into his own hands and says, I know you've said that, but I'm going to do things my way. You know, I, I remember um, praying once for somebody um, and asking that the Lord put a hedge protection around them and they burst out laughing because they said ah, a hedge what good is a hedge going to do let me tell you something I'd rather have God's hedge around about me than Satan's bricks and mortar because God's hedge is far more of a protection than any bricks made by hand Jeroboam didn't need to secure his, and build walls, as it were, to protect his reign. Because God had already agreed to do that for him. So here's the thing. His rebellion must have been in his mind way before he ever took the throne, way before he ever wore the crown. He'd seen God fulfill this promise. Ahijah gave him those ten pieces of the garment and said, God is going to give you ten tribes Jeroboam had seen God fulfill his promise. But it must have been in his mind to think, well, I don't want to be obedient to what God says, because that means being obedient to his word. That means it's not my say that's final. It's his say that's final. And that was a counterfeit protection. It didn't matter how high he built the walls. Let me tell you something. The walls of Jericho were impenetrable for man. But they weren't impenetrable for God. He had a counterfeit protection, but he also had a counterfeit loyalty. Because what he tries to do now, he tries to buy the people's loyalty. Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, 
which was what they were meant to do three times a year for the three of the feasts. Then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Jeroboam worries that he's going to lose his power. Jeroboam worries that he's going to lose his throne. Jeroboam worries that if the people go to Jerusalem to worship like they were meant to do, like they were commanded to do, then the people will suddenly start following Rehoboam. So he tries to win their loyalty, not because um, they serve him out of love, but they serve him out of convenience. You imagine that for some people in the northern part of those 12 tribes, oh, that's a fair way to go down to Jerusalem three times a year. What if somebody came along and said, hey, you don't need to do that anymore. Instead of traveling... 40 miles, how do you fancy traveling four miles? Hey, that sounds far better. So what happens then is there's a counterfeit loyalty. People are only loyal to Jeroboam because he's offered them something that seems easier than serving the Lord. God promised to bless Jeroboam's reign if he would obey the Lord. And God promised him um, stability as well. Uh, he said uh, that I will take thee and thou shalt reign according to all that thy soul desireth and shall be king over Israel. And it shall be if thou wilt hearken unto all that I command thee and walk in my ways and do that which is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments that I will be with thee and build thee a sure house as I built for David and I will give Israel unto you. You don't need to buy their loyalty. You don't need to change anything to make it more convenient for them. I will give you Israel if you hearken unto me, if you're obedient to me, if you follow my word and obey my commands. But Jeroboam does what many others do. Maybe he doesn't believe God's promise. Or maybe he just disregards God's promise. He's not willing to obey the Lord. I wonder sometimes, does that describe us? We're not willing to obey the Lord fully. We're not willing to take that step. Maybe we've messed up in the past because we haven't been obedient to the Lord. Maybe we're in a pickle right now and it's stopping us from serving the Lord, but Satan wants to keep us there. And God says, if, if my people were to call by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their, their wicked ways. Then, conditional promise. If my people repent and turn back to me, then guess what? I'll bring revival. Not just to, to the land, but to you personally. Conditional promise. But we kind of settle for counterfeits. And let's be honest. COVID. Perfect storm. We don't need to go to church anymore. We got it online. It's great for people who cannot come to church. It's great for people who don't have the ability to come to church. It's great for people who are, who are housebound or who don't have a church in their local area. Brilliant. But for people who can come to church and who should be in church, we've suddenly become comfortable. I don't have to go to, to, to Jerusalem to worship. I can worship right here in Dan. I can worship in my home. 
Christ didn't die for your home in that regards. He died for the church. Husband, love your, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. We have an opportunity to gather together. Let me tell you something. There's, there's, there's Christians in this world that don't have the opportunity to go to a physical building and worship openly. They are underground, fearful for their lives. But guess what? They still want to worship. You know, we've had missionaries here say, look, don't pray for the persecution to stop in this country because it's the persecution that separates the wheat from the chaff. It's the persecution that separates the wheat from the tares. It's the persecution that separates the, the sheep from the goats. It's the persecution that shows who the real church are because they are fighting for their lives and are gathering in secret because if they are caught, they are dead. And yet we've got the freedom to come to church and we don't. I'm not against live streaming the services. If you're watching on live stream today, welcome. I'm not against live streaming the services. But it does give us the convenience to say, I don't feel like going today. I can watch church in my pajamas. I can watch church with a cuppa. If you want to watch church in your pajamas and watch a church with a cup of tea, then do that. Come to church in your pajamas. Come to church with a cup of tea in your hand. But come to church. You'll fit right in. Everybody goes shopping in their pajamas today anyway. In the winter, you'll even see them in their dressing gowns. Jeroboam had a counterfeit protection, a counterfeit loyalty. He set up something that was convenient for people. Yeah, it's not always convenient to come to church. There's a million different things we could be doing on a Sunday. I get that. It wasn't convenient for Christ to go to the cross of Calvary and to leave the glories of heaven. But he did. He had a counterfeit counsel. In verse 28, whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods of Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other one he put in Dan. Jeroboam gets ungodly counsel. He was not the man who walked not in the counsel of the ungodly. He was not the man uh, that did not stand in the way of sinners. He was not the man who didn't sit in the seat of the scornful. He does the exact opposite of that. He walks in the counsel of the ungodly. That leads him to stand in the way of sinners. That leads him to sit in, in the seat of the scornful. Don't get caught in the trap of a counterfeit counsel. Because guess what? When you turn to the world for counsel, they are never going to give you biblically solid advice. They're going to give you advice that they think is right that fits in with the world's mold, that fits in with a, a, an unspiritual aspect of things. And godly counsel is the counterfeit of God's word. If somebody gives you advice, line it up with the word of God. What does God's word say about that? Does that line up with God's word or is that in contradiction to God's word? False gods are erected in Dan and Bethel and that takes the attention off God. Two golden calves. Satan wants us to have idols in our lives. These calves reveal the influence of Egypt. 
These sacred, the sacred bull was worshipped in Egypt as the symbol of the goddess Hathor, and the bull was the symbol of strength and fertility. Either Jeroboam is ignorant of Israel's past, or he knows exactly what he's doing. 500 years earlier in Exodus 32, God's people were judged because Aaron made the same golden calves and the people worshipped it. And I say this, that foolish people do not learn from the mistakes of their past. Proverbs 13, 19 says, The desire uh, accomplished is sweet to the soul, but it is abomination to fools to depart from evil. Foolish people don't learn from their past mistakes. If you keep making the same mistake over and over and over and over again, then the Bible says that's foolish. These calves became objects of worship, and even Hosea cried out against them. Hosea 8, 5, Thy calf, O Samaria, hath cast thee off. Mine anger is kindled against them. How long will it be ere they attain to innocency? Uh, for from Israel was it also. The workman made it, therefore it is not God, but the calf of Samaria shall be broken in pieces. Calves were erected in Dan, which was in the right far north of Israel, and in Bethel, which was just 10 miles uh, north of Jerusalem. So calves were in the, the, the complete north uh, 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 of the 10 tribes, and in Bethel, which is in the complete south of Israel, the ten tribes, the northern kingdom. So it was convenient for everybody to get to. Three times a year, Jewish men were meant to go to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. But the altar constructed at Bethel was meant to lure them away from the Lord. Hosea 10.5 says, The inhabitants of Samaria shall fear because of the calves of Beth-Avon. For the people thereof shall mourn over it, and the priests thereof that rejoiced on it for the glory thereof, because it departed from it. Who can tell me what Bethel means? House of God. Beth-Avon means house of emptiness. Jeroboam would change the house of God to the house of emptiness. Jeroboam was trying to lure God's people with, with that which was counterfeit. Counterfeit stuff is not good. Listen, counterfeit fruit may look good, but it doesn't taste good. Artificial flowers may look good, but you're not going to get much of a smell from them. They might look like the real thing, but they can't replace the real thing. A counterfeit lifestyle will produce artificial results. When we follow Satan's counterfeits, then it leaves us empty. It takes us from Bethel, the house of God, and it puts us in Beth even the house of emptiness. Bethel was so close but yet so far away. And that was not God's choice for worship. God wants the heart. Um, you know, we were watching the, the coronation yesterday. Well, I need a bit of it. I didn't watch all of it, but we, we watched a little bit of it. And, and Joe said something really interesting. She said, oh, I, I read a quote this week that kind of sums up a lot of what was taking place. I didn't hear the, the message. I can't comment on whether he gave the gospel or but I just saw a little bit. 
And Joe said, I read a quote that said, it's better to have a, a good heart with no words than words without heart. Is that right? It's better to have heart without words than words without heart. We can say whatever we want, but if we don't mean it, then it's pointless. God just wants us to worship him, to be obedient to him. But it was inconvenient for people to just travel a few miles. And I'm sure there were people who still went to Jerusalem who were like, I'm not going to. I'm not going to Bethel. I'm not going to worship no golden calf. I'm sure there were people who still went down to Jerusalem when it was required. Christianity is becoming a religion of convenience. Many Christians resist sacrifice, commitment, conviction, and inconvenience and hard work because they want it easy. And let's be honest, we do have it easy being a Christian in this country at the moment. Some people say it takes too much time to go to church. It takes too much money. The church is always after money. It takes too much, uh, you know, to crowd my schedule. People think you're crazy. I mean, people think you are absolutely out of your mind if you go to church on a Sunday. If you tell people you go to church three times a week, they think you are absolutely, they think you're like you've got two heads. What? Sunday morning and Sunday night and a Wednesday. What's the matter with you? People think we're crazy. One pastor decided to have a no-excuse Sunday for missing members. He put this out in his church. He said, to make it possible for everyone to attend church next Sunday, we are going to provide the following items. There will be beds in the fire for those who say that Sunday is their only day to sleep in. There will be a special section with lounge chairs for those who feel that the pews are too hard. Eye drops will be available for those whose eyes are tired from watching so much TV late on Saturday night. We will have steel helmets for people who think the roof will cave in if they walk into church. Blankets will be provided for people who think the church is too cold, and fans will be provided for those who think it's too hot. Scorecards will be available for those who wish to list the amount of hypocrites present. One section will be devoted to trees and grass for those who like to see God in nature. Doctors and nurses will be present for people who plan on being sick that day. The auditorium will be decorated with both Christmas decorations and Easter decorations for those people who have never seen the church without them. We will provide hearing aids for individuals who can't hear the preacher and cotton for those who can. Hope to see you there. Do we rely upon excuses for not serving the Lord? He doesn't ask for much from us, does he? But are we so busy chasing counterfeits and that which is convenient that we miss out on the blessings that God wants for our lives? If, if you're obedient to my word, I'll give you a sure house. I'll give you a sure foot in. I'll be with you. Get a counterfeit protection, a counterfeit loyalty, a counterfeit counsel, and a counterfeit religion. It says in verse 30, and this thing became a sin 
For the people went to worship before the, before the one even under Dan. And he made a house of high places and made priests of the lowest of the people which were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month of the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah. And he offered upon the altar, so did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel, and he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. Jeroboam's religion was the epitome of man-made worship. It contained counterfeit gods, it contained counterfeit priests, and it contained counterfeit um, holy days, counterfeit um, feast days. The priests were taken, uh, were meant to be taken from the tribe of Levi. That's what 2 Chronicles uh, 39 says. Have you not cast out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and have made you priests after the manner of the nations of other lands, so that whosoever cometh to consecrate himself with a young bullock and seven rams, the same may be a priest of them that are no gods. Well, what he's saying is, what's the matter with you? The priests are meant to come from the Levites. The high priests are meant to come from the line of Aaron. But now anybody can be a priest. You know, we see that today. There's, there's meant to be a call on God's man. And now anybody can stand in the pulpit. Oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't even matter whether you believe this book or not. Just stand in the pulpit and say whatever you want to say. Well, Paul said, great is our condemnation for the people who do stand in the pulpit. Because one day we give an account to God of everything that we've said from this holy platform. If we've led people away and we've led people astray, that's on us. And that's why Paul said, great is our condemnation. But today now anybody can stand in the pulpit. It doesn't matter how you live your life. Just do what makes you happy. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say do what makes you happy. The Bible doesn't say to live as you please and just kind of make it up as you go along. The Bible's given us instructions for all aspects of our lives and we are as a nation are getting further and further and further and further away from the truths of God's word and our nation's not getting better for it. Our nation's getting worse. It's getting more and more corrupt, more and more wicked, more and more hateful, more and more hurtful. But we want a counterfeit religion. We want a religion that is easy on the years. We don't want to hear about sin. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about hell. Just make us feel good. Well, there's a lot of people being made to feel good all the way to the pits of hell. Because it's Christ and Christ crucified that we're meant to preach. The gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ to the saving of souls. Man-made religion just says you do what works for you. But Christianity says that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Man's religion is based on man's abilities. Ah, you're good enough. No. Christianity is based on God's abilities. Man's religion, someone other than God is the mediator. Whether it's the Pope, whether it's Mary, whether it's uh, uh, Brooklyn, whether it's uh, Utah, whatever it is, there is a mediator. Our mediator is Christ. 
Man's religion is technically complex and difficult, even though they're trying to make it simple. Christianity is the simplest religion out there. Because it says Christ did it all upon the cross, and that's the one you trust in. Man's religion just says, do what's right in your eyes. Christianity demands obedience to the Lord. Jeroboam's counterfeit became a snare to the people. His roots of rebellion yielded the fruit of rebellion. And everybody who was wicked after him will be pointed back to they did exactly what Jeroboam did. They were just like Jeroboam. Solomon may have been a, a good king that went awry. Rehoboam was certainly a bad king that caused some issues. But Jeroboam was ugly in the fact that he laid the foundation for the northern kingdom to be steeped in, idro- in idolatry. You know, from Jeroboam and his setup of this counterfeit religion, we end up with people like Ahab and Jezebel. Jeroboam was a king of counterfeits. But before we get too harsh on Jeroboam, let's just close with a few thoughts that we too find ourselves doing things our own way instead of the Bible's way. We've got some counterfeits in our lives. We get angry and bitter towards those that offend us, and then God says, you've got to forgive them. (laughs) We're selfish sometimes, but God says we're meant to be sacrificial. We're unfaithful when it comes to being obedient to the word and being in church, but God says that we are to be faithful. God says we should be patient and wait upon him, but sometimes we run ahead of the Lord and say, come on, God, keep up. We're constantly being enticed and lured and sometimes hooked by Satan's counterfeits. And God says, stand fast. Don't fall for Satan's counterfeits. Don't be enticed away by the lures of the world because there is pleasure in sin for a season. But the consequences, from an eternal point of view, far outweigh the benefits and the pleasures you receive for such a small, minuscule amount of time. Satan distracts us, gets our eyes off the Lord, offers us something that sounds good. You listen to people who knock on your door, it sounds good. Sounds like somebody was searching for maybe Christianity. It's like, oh, hang on, yeah, that... That doesn't sound half bad. Counterfeits are meant to sound like the real thing. You know, we've said this before, rat poison, 99.99% good food. It's the 0.01% of poison that kills them. 99.99% of it is good. Counterfeits, 99.99% of it might sound good. But it's the point... Zero one percent that'll kill you, that'll lead you away from the Lord. Don't be distracted by counterfeits. You want the truth, then stick to the truth. 
You don't need to look anywhere else. You don't need to look at Facebook for your facts. Look to the Facebook for facts. Because that's all we need. We don't need to be distracted by the counterfeits of this world. Father, we thank you again for this day, for this time together, for this opportunity to come around your word. And Lord, we just pray that you'd help us. We recognize the fact that there are many idols set up in this world, that the devil would happily want us to take our eyes off the Lord and focus upon those idols, focus upon those counterfeits, do anything to take us away from serving the Lord, take us away from being obedient to the word of God. Father, I just prayed you'd help us. Lord, we are desperate for a revival to take place in Wales, but in order for that to happen, there's got to be a revival in our hearts first. Father, we would love to see our churches filled to the brim every single week. But Lord, we can become so distracted by the things of the world. We can become distracted about the events in our lives. That causes us to take our eyes off the Lord. But Father, help us to never do that. You've made plenty of conditional promises to us that if we do this, then you'll bless us in a certain way. So Father, help us to be obedient when it comes to those conditional promises that we might see you move in our lives and in our church and in our homes and in our schools and that we might see you move in Wales like we've not seen for the last hundred or so years. So Lord, would you just help us Help us as we strive to do all that we should and could for you. Help us to be obedient to your word, that your will might be done in our lives, that we might do a work for you. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We stand and close by singing our last hymn together.
Julian will close us in a word of prayer. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Lord, for your presence this morning. Lord, we thank you for the, the, the peace, the, the ability that we have to gather together in this way, Lord, uh, without the fear of any persecution, Lord, and we just uh, are thankful to you, Lord, for the service this morning. We thank you for your word, thank you for your servant, um, serving you faithfully, Lord, and bringing you a word to us uh, today. We just pray your blessing upon him and his family, Lord, and we pray that uh, this morning that your word will dwell within us, that we might go from this place considering the things that we've heard, Lord. Thank you for the challenge that you've given us, and we pray, Lord, that we'll dwell on those things. So be with us, Lord, until we gather together again later this day and uh, just bless us each one Lord bless each family and each home that's represented to you this morning so be with us we pray Lord and accept our thanks in Jesus name